Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. With me, I'm Bill Arnold, and thank you uh, for that introduction music, Nat. That was kind of fun. Yeah, you know, it gives us something to look forward to. Mixes it up a little. Yeah, nice to have you here with us today. Nat's uh, working the board today. Welcome to Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. The power panel is in place, and we are uh, here ready to take your questions, whatever they might be. Text them over, 877-933-2484. The power panel today is Jeff Dorn. Uh Pastor Tom Parrish, Dr. Peter Kapsner, and 007 Justin Jepson. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Bill. Hey, Bill. Good to be with you, Bill. Everybody uh, roll call. There we go, Justin. You're there as well. I appreciate everyone being here. I've got uh, some good questions, but I'm always open to hearing from you, whatever your question is. Again, I'll give you the number 877-933-2484. Here's a question uh, that came in. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness... He quoted scripture to refute the devil. Did he need to memorize that scripture previously, or as God, did Jesus on earth already know all the scripture? Well, it said he learned obedience, and I think that's an interesting phrase in the in the Bible. So, becoming perfectly, totally man, as well as being totally God, but he gave up his rights, says Philippians two, and. Uh, Follow the Father, so that by age 12, when he goes to the temple, he obviously had really studied Torah and the and the Old Testament prophets and whatever, because he baffled those people. So no, I think Jesus was an incredible student, absorbing into himself and making it uh, really his talking points in his life. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that Philippians 2 passage, it talks about him. He emptied himself and made mm. himself nothing, becoming like uh, us, man, in every way, except, of course, was without sin. So if he was a man that lived by perfect faith, it seems to me, even though he was the word embodied, right, the logos embodied in the flesh, and at times it appeared like Jesus had insight into what people were thinking when he answered their questions, um, it seems to me that as a man he would have had to study uh, except I think it was a lot easier for Jesus to memorize Scripture than me. But, uh, yeah, I think he did. I think he studied and knew the Word. Mm. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I mean that Luke 2 passage when he was in the, in the temple, and at the end of that, that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor of God and man. So I think that gives that idea that he, he grew up— um, and went through the whole process the same way that every other human being did in being fully human. And, you know, I think it, he really embodied, you know, when the psalmist talks about how can I how can keep his way pure by guarding our heart according to your word. I've stored up your word in my heart that it might not sin against you. And so, you know, Jesus didn't have a little, a little pocket scroll he could take out of his tunic or an app he could pull up on his phone. I think he, yeah, he had spent time uh, storing up, praying, and studying the Word, and so that he was ready 
um, to wield the word in that time of temptation and to be victorious over uh, the devil's temptation at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, yeah, I don't have any, I have nothing yeah. to add to, to that. I think it's it's a tricky question. It's the same question that you could ask to say, did did he know a language when he was an infant? You know, to what degree is he divine in his understanding of the world? To what degree is he human? People have puzzled over that over centuries. And, and I don't, I mean, the Bible isn't terribly interested in telling us that uh, the answer to that question, just because it's not necessarily the point of his life, but it's still a fun question to wonder about with him. But I think these guys have hit on the passages that are relevant mm-hmm. in terms of something related to his understanding. I agree. I agree. You know, related one thing, you know, I think we emphasize Christ's divinity and rightly so he's God in the flesh, Emmanuel. Uh, you know, he asked, why do you kill me, he says, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So he clearly made that claim. But I, but I, sometimes I wonder if we emphasize his humanity enough in the church and that mm-hmm. he was a man. I mean, he, he felt pain. He got hungry. He had emotions. He was a man just like us, uh, was tempted in every way. Uh, and yet that passage, I think it's in Hebrews, it says, yet was without sin. Yeah. It's interesting, too, when you think about Jesus that Philippians 2 passage about emptied himself. I was just looking at it. And the really the concept is there was a thorough cleaning. There was He gave up the total totality of his divinity. And then what did he do? He did what Israel was supposed to do, what you and Eric ought to do. He walked by faith. And he said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So Jesus showed in himself the ability to do this. And he did walk that way as God the Father had always intended. But because of sin, we fell so far short. But uh, Jesus can do this. I just want to say, I had a professor who was in the 70s when I knew him. He had memorized the entire New Testament. You could say to him, Colossians 3, and, and he'd have it before you get there. And he said, well, that's not so amazing. He said, I had a professor who did it in the Greek. And I said, well, do you have an extraordinary mind? Do you have a, you know, he said, no, but I found a good method. And I think that Jesus had a very good method for studying the scriptures and put it to work and memorize the word. And I think we're capable of doing that, too. But most of us, because we have that right in front of us all the time, you know, we're not living in a country where we can't have a Bible. It's amazing how much mm. you can memorize when you have to. I agree. Mm. And, you know, I know actors that will memorize a 128-page script. Yeah. And they're only going to do it for six weeks. And I go, you, you memorize 128 pages? You, know, you take 128 pages of scripture mm. and learn it in mm. six weeks. You could mm. probably do it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And Jeff, I just want to follow up on the point you made about his humanity. I I was thinking about it, thinking, gosh, that's such a good point, because one of the things that Jesus demonstrates and one of the things that makes us so human is our emotional responses and and reactions within given situations. And and I think for some reason we've lived in a maybe a couple of generations worth where we don't trust emotions or we don't see them as usable or we kind of got to take them out of the equation or whatever it is. But but part of being fully human is to experience the fullness of proper emotion in the midst of whatever circumstance you find himself. And so Jesus wept and he laughed and he he had compassion for and he was so moved um, in his actions towards people. Dare I say, clearly he had the right theology that was underpinning his actions, but he was moved by genuine human emotion. And I think we can learn a lot about how to ask for our own emotional responses to be ordered mm. in a similar way that Jesus did to the circumstances around him, because it is a very much a human thing that he was experiencing. Mm-hmm. I have that verse memorized, by the way. Jesus wept. 
I like it. I got, I got I like that it. one down. No, it's a good one. Twenty-eight pages for you, Jeff. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 What you're saying John is 11. you know that by heart. I do. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Stunning. Oh, stunning wielding of scripture, Jeff. That's yeah. Amazing. You know this TV series, The Chosen, the the, the depiction of Jesus in that. And, and they take some liberty, certainly, and I understand what they're doing. But if, but of all the films I've seen, and that this is probably the most human depiction of Jesus I've ever seen, and it is, I think, exceptionally well done from that point of view because he's truly human and truly understands what we're going through. And I think that's something all the listeners have to understand. No matter what you're facing, he truly does understand, and he truly knows what to do about it. But too often, uh, we don't get to Jesus until we're pretty far down the road with a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think also just on that comment too, another thought that came up, I, you know, I think one of the first, you know, really kind of heresies that was addressed in the early church by the apostle John was that Jesus um, wasn't fully human. You know, it was an attack against his humanity more than it was his divinity. And I was just thinking about first John four, two, he says, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And and so I think while this is such a mystery, I, I mean, again, I think it, it gives us such. I mean, this is so, so so remarkable about Jesus is is just his 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 accessibility, mm-hmm. you know, and how like it says in Isaiah that he had no form or appearance that should be desired, you know. And I think of he was just a common person. I I, I don't think you know I think every depiction, whether it's the chosen, you know, they have to do that, but you always kind of know who's playing Jesus, right, when they show up in the scene. And it's like, he was just such a normal person, <laughs> you know, and obviously, but yet supernatural. And I think I think just that that commonness and that hiddenness is such an invitation for us to come to him. And I love that scripture that I think was already mentioned, that he's our great high priest. He's able to empathize with us in our weaknesses. And so, um and, that, and again, that's what stands out about Jesus, obviously, about any other religious figure in all of human history. Not only does he um, have two natures in one person, but just the fact that he is fully human. He is the perfect human. And so that gives us that, not only just that example, but he also empowers us to live like him. And that gives us so much hope. If we could just step back into Jeff's brilliant memory work of having memorized John eleven thirty five, I love it. And I, I don't like I don't like to talk much on guy talk. I prefer you guys to talk. But I, let me jump in just for a second here. And when I take a, a verse as simple as that, two words, Jesus wept, and I, I ask myself three questions: how How can I give him praise for this passage? Um, what about this passage mm. convicts me, and what action can I take? Mm. So I think: How can I give him praise? I give him praise that he is standing in this, these emotions and he is he convicts me because I'm not always comfortable with other people's discomfort. And what action can I take is to stay comfortable with other people's discomfort. Right. Good that's word. The rest love of that. My, I love that. That's that, great. That's the rest of my talking for the day. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> really good. Really good. I mean, but how else do you, uh, what, how do you apply scripture when you read something? So when I take a verse as short as that one, I think, well, how can I, how can I apply that in my life? So how do I give God mm. praise for that verse? And what is it, how does it convict me and what action can I take? Mm. Just think if we sat, honestly, Bill, and spent 24 hours just considering those two words, Jesus wept, and kept thinking about it and praying it back to the Lord and saying, Lord, 
I don't understand the depth of this. How does this affect me? How does it affect my relationships? How does it affect my broken past? I think the end of 24 hours, what you're talking about, would have a tremendous impact. But too often, I, I always have these people in church say, Pastor, I read the Bible through in a year. And I said, it's not a race. You know, it, it's not a race to see how fast you can read through it. The goal is to get into it and let it change us and let the Word speak to us. And what you're talking about is perfect. Well, I've got an illustration that goes back to today. Um, and maybe this is one of those times where I'm willing to be uh, comfortable with somebody else's discomfort. I was in a parking lot, and this woman had come out of the pet store with this very arthritic old dog. And the dog mm-hmm. was kind of limping along, and, I, and I, she had some bags, and I, and I just saw this, and I thought, oh, my. And I went up, and I said... Can I, can I help in any way? Can I carry or pick up or do anything of any assistance? And she said, no, I think I'm fine. And I said, you have a lovely dog. And um, she said, well, he's 15 and he's got bad arthritis, but he's my very best friend. Oh. And she said, I don't know what I'm going to do when I lose him. Yeah. Mm. And I started mm. to have tears in my eyes because I said, mm. I get it. I understand. Mm-hmm. And she's got mm-hmm. tears in her eyes, and I got tears in mine. I'm in a parking lot talking to a complete stranger. <laughs> but it's right. that mm-hmm. kind of empathy that communicates mm-hmm. the reality of Jesus to people. Maybe, yeah. And I, and we I said, need to do that. I said, well, God bless you, and that's how I left it. That's then, good. Yeah, I need to take Very a break. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, and you can text the questions over 877-933-2484. Or if you like a longer version, you can email me, bill, at myfaithradio.com. just joined us it is guy talk or guys who talk and they do it well power panel is uh pastor tom Parrish, jeff verdorn pastor uh justin jepson 007 and dr peter kapsner always glad to have the team here and thank you for being here gentlemen um talk about the phrase word of god when he speaks into existence things come into existence god spoke with his words what does the phrase Word of God mean? We use that a lot. Well, the Word of God is a living reality. It's not simply a phrase. It is a living reality that has power because it comes from the, the actual uh, being of the Lord. And so when it says that the Word, like in John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, what we see is the, perf- the personification of that nature, and it's really Jesus. And that's why, as we were mentioning in the green room, the road to Emmaus is so powerful where he tells Cleopas and the other disciple about everything the Old Testament said about him. So he's throughout the entire thing, and he is the living Word of God. I think of that Peter, Second Peter 3 passage where it says, By God's Word, the mm-hmm. heavens were made. They came into being by, by God speaking. You know, science says that the, at the Big Bang, at the creation of all things, there was nothing, 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 and then boom, there was everything. That's actually wrong. It, there was God. In the beginning, God spoke, and he created everything into existence by his powerful word. And at the end of the 
Bible. In fact, Second Peter 3 goes on to say it's, it's by this same word that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment. At the end of all things, by his powerful word, he is not only going to bring an end to this age, he is going to usher in the new age, this new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. And Jesus is pictured on a white horse coming back at the second coming. And what's coming out of his mouth? This sword, this sharp double-edged sword, which is the word of God and which he strikes down the nations at his second coming. That's the battle of Armageddon. So not only in creation, but also in consummation, we have this idea of the powerful word of God. Hmm. Nice. I think that also... To your point, Jeff, I mean, not only that in between the creation and consummation, I think of Hebrews that he he upholds everything by the word of his power. Mm -hmm. So not only is it a creative word, but it's a sustaining word. And, you know, and I think even practically, and I, you know, I think just as Jesus or just as, you know, um, Jesus as the word become flesh, um, hearkening back to, to Genesis, you know, that this fact that, that God's word, you know, theologians talk about it, he, God created ex nihilo, which is he created out of nothing. So his word didn't use already formed substance. His word created something, everything out of nothing. And I think that's where there's the power of actually getting into the word of God. So the Holy Scriptures that either we could have no passion for God or an appetite for the things of God, a desire for God. But there's something powerful um, about, inherently powerful about the Word of God that it speaks into our soul and awakens within us um, the eternity that God has put within our hearts. And so, and so I think that's why, you know, even Scripture memorization, I mean, even just, you know, Bill's point, or you, know, you memorize John 11.35, two words, just two words of the Word of God. Look at the power that it has and the creative power that it has for His life to be produced in and through you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I love this conversation. I, when I think of God's Word, I think, like probably many people, I think immediately of the Scriptures. But this is just a word from God, the Scriptures. And and by saying just, I'm not diminishing. I, I think we all agree about how, how grateful we are and how sacred we hold the text, because it is God's Word. But it is a word uh, from God to His people. And the Bible's filled then with God speaking all throughout the text in ways that were not necessarily scripture. He spoke to his people. He he spoke creation, as Jeff was talking about, and Justin was talking about, into being. And I think it teaches us of the creative power of words, or just even the power of words in general, uh, especially when the, the Bible says the tongue has the power to bless and to curse and to create. And I, and I think one of the things that I would like to be more mindful of in my own life is just how the words that you choose do have the power to create a different kind of reality in Mm -hmm. somebody's life. I I think about if I withhold words from my son or from my daughter, for example, as a parent where maybe I'm proud of them or they've done a good job or whatever it is to simply say it out loud instead of think it and not say it, it actually creates something in them that otherwise wouldn't have existed. Now what that is, it's maybe hard to, to grasp or quantify, but when I say, uh, I'm so proud of the effort that you put into this situation and or you name it. I think we all know when we're the recipient of those kinds of words, it changes or it um, it, it evolves in our life in some ways. And so I think we have the power of language um, that we learn as God spoke and his imagers, us on Earth, also have the power to to speak into each other's lives. It's It's really beautiful when we use it in the right way. 
All right, before we go to break, which is going to be in about five minutes, I don't know if we can squeeze this in, but Mother's Day is Sunday, and we all have living mothers. Three of us have living mothers on this earth, and two of us have living mothers in heaven. Hi, Mom. Hey, Carol. Um, So do you have a poignant memory uh, of your mother or something she taught you or a moment that you recall with great clarity in your mind? That would be an honor to her or something that that triggers a memory. I, I do. I My mom was a BSF Bible student for years and years, a volunteer at the church, and uh, in a lot of ways, the spiritual uh, leader of our home. And I think it's her influence in so many ways that uh, got me involved in my own personal faith walk. And I remember specifically uh, night after night at dinner time having this little plastic rack with scripture on these little <laughs> cards mm-hmm. and we would pull one out at dinner time and that was all my mom's doing and we always thought oh come on, we have to do this again kind of thing and now I look back years later and I'm so thankful for him, her influence in my life that mm-hmm. way so Beautiful. thanks mom Beautiful. I think she's listening to oh, today, so. yeah I hope she is <laughs> I have one maybe it's a little different than that but it, it makes me laugh my mom and I have just laughed together a lot over the years and for that I'm really grateful and one of the things that a story we return to seems like about every three years or so, and we laugh as if it just happened, even, <laughs> even though in the moment it wasn't funny, is I, I think I was about four years old, and she was on the phone, and it was one of those corded phones uh, on the wall. We didn't have cell phones back then. And I was ready for some breakfast, man. I, I was dying to get my freezy, freaky cereal out of the, the cabinet above the stove, and I couldn't reach it. And I kept saying, Mom, Mom. I need my freezy freakies. Mom, I need my free. And she was on the phone. I finally walked over and just went bonk and hung up the phone on her uh, and, and said, I need my free. And she, and you, she grabbed her wooden spoon from the kitchen and started chasing me around the dining room table until she finally, you know, got me in and I got a proper, you know, whack from, the, from that at that moment. And the reason why I bring it up is we can't tell that story now without basically collapsing into tears about how funny it is. And to have such a trusting, fun relationship with my mother that way, that was, you know, I had proper discipline growing up, but she, she always has been a quick person to laugh with me and the fact that we have the kind of relationship that we can laugh about the freezy freaky story. I'm sure it's going to come up again now in the next year or so. If she's not listening as we speak. <laughs> I love it. I love the humor because my mother is in the kingdom of God. Now she died at age 99 years, eight months. Good mind right to the end. But I remember when I was in college and I came home from college one day cause I was commuting mom's on the phone and she's talking, I think to her sister and she goes, I am just sick about Shirley dying. You know, this shouldn't have happened. After what her husband did to her, this, this conversation goes on for about five minutes. I'm sitting there. She gets done, hangs up the phone. I said, Mom, who's Shirley? You know, that, is it a relative or whatever? My mom just looked at me, no. Well, well, is she a friend of yours? No. Well, who is the Shirley? Well, she's an actress on As the World Turns, her character that killed her <laughs> off. And I said, Mom, don't do that to me. So until the day she died, that was always a big laugh. Uh, all right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, we'll take your questions for sure. 877-933-2484. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. And the power panel today is uh, Tom Paris, Jeff Verdorn, Justin Jepson, and Peter Kapsner. We'll be right back. Oh. 
Listen to Guy Talk. So glad to have my friends and colleagues and biblical scholars here around the table. We'll take whatever questions you have, 877-933-2484. But before we get to that, Justin, you still have you owe us a mom story. Yeah. Well, you know, one of mine actually that, that just bubbles to my mind is um, my mom always gardened uh, growing up and had one in the backyard, and she was famous kind of for her tomatoes that she would grow and uh, bake you know, homemade sauces and soups and especially her spaghetti sauce. But there was one year that um, I don't know what happened, but like the, the, the tomatoes just never ripe. They just stayed green <laughs> and they basically it's just like a false batch. And so we didn't know what, like, you know, what do we do with all these? And I think we were, I can't remember how it started, but essentially my mom and I got into a little cherry tomato and they were green uh, throwing fight and literally <laughs> were pelting each other for it felt like an hour and we were just soaked in like clothes stained everything and I thought, <laughs> wow like my mom can throw pretty hard <laughs> and uh, so that's something I probably still have some scars and bruises from but uh, that, that's a memory of mine that stands out and just, just that that fun moment yeah it's great I love mm-hmm. that a lot of the stories that are so memorable enjoyed rule breaking and playfulness <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's a question. Uh, this is probably a fast answer. Is the NIV version accurate and acceptable uh, for the Word of God? It's easier to understand than the King James Version. Yes. Um, yeah. I read the NIV. I have for 30 years. Um, I continue to use the NIV 84 edition because I have uh, lots of the phrases in my head um, that when I go to search and try to find a verse, I, this is the phrase from the NIV that I search for. At the same time, when I'm studying, I will often have multiple versions up, the NIV yeah. and the NASB. Uh, the uh, New American Standard Bible is more of a formal equivalence translation, more of a word-for-word. Word. The NIV is more of a thought-by-thought thought translation. Uh, one's not more accurate than another. It's just what you what your goals are in translating the Greek into the English um, so, but yeah, I, you know, and for the most part, the, most of the modern English translations that you have up, you go look at any verse, uh, and, and most of the time they are saying exactly the same thing. So yes, we have many good English translations of the Bible. The only difference I've seen is with the ESV in Jude verse five, it uses the name Jude writes and says, and I don't want you to forget, you know, that it was Jesus who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And it turns out the NIV doesn't have it. It just says Lord. But the ESV was able to get a hold of even earlier manuscripts than the ones the NIV used. And the early manuscripts have Jesus in it, which Mm. is astounding. Mm. But uh, I always advise people, look at three, four translations. Don't Don't make your whole life on one. Look at several of them. But that's one of the most unique things I've run into over all these years. And if there's big differences, go back to the Greek yourself. Exactly. Well said. All right, here's a question. In Revelation 26, I'm already looking your way, Jeff. Uh, it reads that he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, 
to him I will give authority over the nations. My question is, will there still be nations at the end, and will there be people ruling them? Um, Very good question. First, who is it that overcomes? There's a promise in each of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and it says, to he who overcomes, and we know that John wrote the book of Revelation. He also wrote 1 John chapter 5, which says, who is it that overcomes? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And so we know that the definition of this word is overcomes. By the way, the NIV has now changed it so that uh, they translate in Revelation 2 and 3 in the new NIV to victorious. It's not a bad translation, uh, but they now have in 1 John 5 overcomes and in Revelation 2 and 3 victorious. And you miss that it's the same word all of a sudden. So uh, just a thought there. But um, there is a mystery in Revelation that when we get to the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem, there are these nations that are mentioned. And uh, there's lots of different ideas about who these are because once we get to the new heaven and new earth, it seems to me there should only be one nation, and that is the people of God. Uh, only the righteous enter into this new heaven and new earth. So it's kind of a mystery of who the nations are at the back of the book. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, what? Let's see. Here's another question that popped up. What does the Bible mean by the term church? Well, the, yeah, the, the, go ahead. Go ahead, Peter. Oh, yeah. No, the definition that I would understand is ecclesia, uh, is the word for church. And it... Uh, it, I think the most important thing that we can keep in mind is it doesn't refer to a specific institution that has a church staff or a hierarchy of priests or um, a gathering place or a website or anything like that. The church uh, is meant to be the people who have said yes to following Jesus and as a result have been baptized into one body, to use the language of Scripture, and so the Spirit is dwelling among them as a people. Uh, how they gather is how they gather. In first century, they gathered in certain kinds of ways, oftentimes in house churches. Sometimes they all gathered together in larger amphitheaters if a traveling uh, speaker would be or a teacher would be there. Um, so you, you just really have to keep in mind that there's such a difference between the church is actually the people relationally who are indwelt by the Spirit together. And then the second question is, is how you gather? Those are organizational questions, but it's actually inconsistent biblically to say that you're going to church. You might be going to a building to be with the church, but but when we associate the church with a you know steeple and a website and stuff, I think maybe uh, we're missing something that could be quite exciting. It's the relationship of the people because they've surrendered to Jesus and Jesus dwells in them. And I think that's the part that we often miss. Too often, you're right, Peter, we talk about going to the church. Uh, I know churches that have literally divided, as crazy as that sounds, over the color decor in the sanctuary, or whether they're going to have, you know, this setup or that setup. It has nothing to do with it in the end. What it has everything to do with are the people, and the people surrendered to Jesus and you know, walking as his disciples and loving one another. And that's why in the New Testament there are a plethora of one another passages that we really need to be focusing on more and more about loving, serving, forgiving, working together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so important, uh, more yeah. important than the building. Yeah, you both mentioned people, and that's exactly ecclesia, the Greek word for church, is literally the fellowship of the believers or the gathering of the believers. And anyone who is a true born-again believer in Jesus Christ is part 
of that church. Jesus says mm-hmm. he is the head. He is the one who established it. It's made up of people that believe in Jesus Christ, not in any man-made organization. And, uh, and yeah, that's the simple definition, biblically, of the mm-hmm. church. Yeah, I think that's that's all. I don't know much to add there, but I, the text that comes to my mind is in Matthew 16, which I believe is the first time that the word church is actually mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. And as Matthew is writing to primarily a Jewish audience, I mean, the word ecclesia was very common for them. They would gather frequently, um, you know, a weekly in the synagogue. But when Jesus says, I will build my church, I will build my gathering, I think, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was distinguishing what he was building from what was already had been built and um, rendering that um, essentially obsolete as if he's coming to fulfill and that he's gathering his people. So I think it also, it conveys um, both the vertical belonging that we have um, as God's children, but also the horizontal belonging that we have to one another as fellow brothers and sisters. Yeah, and I think, uh, guys, I'd be curious your thoughts, too, on this, but there's so much hand-wringing going on about the next generations not really wanting to attend church, uh, and, and I understand some of the hand-wringing, but I also understand that maybe we could look at this from a different angle in a different direction, that if, if, again, if we're using the word church, as Jeff said, as the gathering of people, then how you gather really is not as important as the fact that you're gathering. And so I would encourage parents and grandparents who might be listening and their kids are saying, man, I don't want to go to church, uh, meaning that they don't want to go to the way that organization is gathering and what they do when they gather. Maybe it's, you know, three or four worship songs and a 20-minute sermon or whatever it is. I think you could sit down and have a really helpful conversation with young people to say, how would you like to gather? And what would that look like as we are trying to grow as discipleships together? You invite them into the process. Young people are terribly hungry for, for spirituality, for uh, finding answers to things. Um, they really have a response to Jesus, even if they're saying, I don't want to do this church thing anymore. I think it just really helps to say, well, let's just gather together in a different way. What, what are you guys looking for kind of thing? So it's, I, that's what I'm finding with young people at, at the school in which I teach, that they're still every bit as hungry. They just don't want to gather that way anymore. I see a lot of churches nowadays that have the big sign in front of the church that, that say, all are welcome here. Mm. So what does it mean to be welcome? Who is welcome among the people of God? Who is welcome to attend and join the church? And then does involvement make any demands, either in terms of belief or behavior? It sure does. (laughs) (laughs) That's Pastor Tom Parrish speaking. uh, It does, because when you come to Jesus, you become part of the church, you come on his terms, not on your terms. And too often we try to turn that around. And so some of the people that say all are welcome here, uh, that's kind of an inside word for you can come with whatever lifestyle you want, whatever beliefs you want, and you're going to be fine here. Well, that's okay as an entry uh, in the sense of people coming in. But sooner or later, if they want to be in leadership, they want to teach, if they want to have an influence in the church, they've got to come to grips with the reality of who this Jesus is and what he demands And really, most people don't understand it. Jesus, we get this image of Jesus, this gentle shepherd. But if you look at Scripture, he's highly demanding and controversial because he says things that absolutely blow people away. And he said, look, I'm it. There's no other way to get to heaven but by me. And that's pretty shocking for people. But that's part of what we got to help people understand. It's both and. You know, just about every church I know, they welcome all. And I think, Tom, you're exactly right. I think that's code language to say, 
we are going to be accepting of your lifestyle. You know, I don't think Christianity should ever be ashamed to call sin, sin. Yes. Uh, we sh- The gospel is available to whosoever, to every single person. And every church I know understands that, that God wishes everyone to be saved and uh, and died on the cross for all and loves all. And this, this gospel uh, is for whosoever. And so in that sense, the church is for all. But you're absolutely right. Once you want to become a part of a family of God, it is for believers. That ecclesia word we were talking about is the fellowship mm-hmm. of believers. Mm-hmm. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, and are, and then other organizations, other churches will have a statement of faith, and they'll say, we want a, a group of people that agree on these core biblical truths. And then that kind of doctrinal unity becomes more and more important, as you described. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you, Jeff, because I struggle with uh, sometimes we use uh, seeker su- seeker friendly services for Sunday. And and I understand the impulse of that to want to have people exposed to Christianity. But I, it, it's made me wonder over these past maybe five, 10 years, if we shouldn't have different ways in which people are exposed to to what the kingdom of God is like, besides coming into the gathering on a Sunday morning um, for that hour, because we also need the richness of that time together as the ecclesia in some form. So I'm not sure what it all looks like, but but there mm-hmm. is a distinct there is a distinction between people who have said yes to following Jesus and have given their lives to following Him, and people who haven't. There you just you can't really get away from the distinction. And I think maybe we need to not. Be combining the reasons for the gatherings that we do on Sunday sometimes, and that doesn't make it some exclusive club where somebody couldn't come and observe or participate. But I mean, even Scripture seems pretty clear that you shouldn't come to the communion table if you have, you know, some things against your brother or your sister. There, there's a way of life represented at that communion table that um, I'm just I, I, I wrestle through this. I'm not going to land dogmatically on one side or the other, but I think it's a really important question that we need to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just one thing I'll mention briefly, and then I actually need to log off a little bit early. So sorry, guys. I'm gonna I'm gonna miss the. That's last so 007. Like, <laughs> yeah, understand. It's very That's mysterious. So too, isn't it? We're getting used to this. Yeah, yeah. Flynn is waiting for me. So I'm, just <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I mean I think sometimes there's this you know mentality of you know do we um, do we belong and then we become you know or do we become and then we belong. And, and and I think that the you know the way that I see Jesus as being full of grace and truth, and one of the places that he often gathered with people was around a table. And you know, for one, there was always people around the table that the religious leaders thought didn't belong there. And he gave the sense of belonging and acceptance for them to come as they are because he's a God of grace, but also because he's a God of truth. Um, if they wanted to follow him, there was a cost of discipleship they couldn't leave as they were. And in fact, he loves us too much to leave us leave leave us as we were. And so I think that to, to Peter's point too, I think there needs to be these other entry points of belonging, you know, that even outside of the Sunday, even the way that early church gathered, um, often day to day, and and to have those expressions of the kingdom of God, uh, so that people can belong, and then and learn about who Jesus is, and then as they believe. Uh, they become what God intended uh, for them to become uh, as as his creation, as his sons and daughters. And so I think there's a kind of that, that tricky dynamic that can sometimes we can try to wall off and try to create all these loopholes uh, for people to come into the church and they have to believe certain things. But you know, look at how Jesus called his disciples. I mean, it was it was a messy process that I think we need to believe, you know, make, believe room 
leave room for that uh, for all com- people coming in from all different walks of life and different experiences, but yet the common reality of meeting Jesus and laying down our lives and following Him. Awesome. We'll take we'll take a little break. We'll come back more guide talk and you, time for your questions. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. We say goodbye to double oh seven till next week. Thank you for joining us, Justin, and we'll be right back. Guys who talk, they're doing a great job. We're so glad uh, you joined us today. I hope you enjoy this segment as much as we do. We have a blast being together. It's really, really fun. It's great that we have like-minded people that can get together and and just talk about God's Word. Yep. I I love it. Yeah. So um, what does the Bible say about grief and grieving? Hmm. Well, it talks about grieve with those who grieve, you know, laugh with those who laugh. There's a place for it. It just can't be the kind of grieving that destroys us or that draws us away from the Lord. Real Christian grieving is grieving to where, yeah, you feel all the emotions, you have all the tears, but you keep going back to the Lord Jesus for direction, healing, and a way to overcome that. And if more of us would do that, I think we'd have a lot healthier lives uh, now and uh, as we step into eternity. You know, I, I know we've all been to f- funerals, and I'm, I'm sure you've done a number of funerals, Tom, as a pastor. And, and um, you know, I've been to believers' funerals, and I've been to unbelievers' funerals. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how different these mm-hmm. two things are. And I, I think of this passage, it's in First Thessalonians 4, and it says uh, that we grieve when a believer passes, but not like the rest of man who have no hope. And when a believer dies, we know that they are immediately absent from the body and at home with the Lord. So we grieve. We're going to miss our loved ones. But at the same time, we rejoice mm-hmm. in in that this person is now with the Lord. So, um, man, I have been to believers' funerals and unbelievers, and they are two different things. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that passage, Jeff. That's where I was landing, too, is the, in that exact description, that when you're at a funeral— for a believer, uh, it it is the fullness of grief meeting the fullness of hope, right? Like both are totally present. I I think maybe the the best possible celebration of a funeral is that you cry uh, unlike other kinds of tears that you would otherwise cry because of the loss, but you also now are never closer to the resurrection event, and um and and the veil gets really thin. The couple funerals that I've done in my life, I, I think of one in particular where a person got baptized and professed his faith maybe three months before he died rather mm. suddenly. And I didn't know him very well, um, or really at all. I knew a bit of the family, but they decided, they they had his confession of faith on an audio tape. So you couldn't even see, you could just hear it. And we, and we stood in the funeral hall that day and they played the audio tape of his confession of faith. And I just, I still get chills when I think about it to this day that 
clearly there was a ton of grief for the sudden loss of their husband and of their father and of their friend. And yet here he was um, still speaking. You know, that passage in, in Hebrews, that Abel, uh, though dead, still speaks, that this confession of faith was outliving him and was also representative of where he was now because the resurrection was real. And it was just a stunning moment. I, I love weddings. But but the veil between this world and the next is so thin at those funerals that it, it really can be this place of grief and hope all at the same time. I think what you're saying, Peter, is so important because I had the same experience with a gentleman who died, but three months before that, he had done a testimony on videotape. So in the funeral, we put up on the screen his testimony for about mm, two minutes, wow. and I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. Yeah. The point is, every church should be doing this with their believers right now. We have the capabilities with your phones to do mm. video of especially elderly, but any age group, and archive that away, and who knows, that funeral may come, and that'd be a marvelous thing to, to hear what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always, when I read an obituaries, and sometimes I like reading them because you're, you're capsulating somebody's life in a little paragraph. Yeah. And mm-hmm. how are you going to cap, capsulize your life? Or how is someone going to capsulize your life? You almost would want to say to your loved one, if you were to write my obit, Write it. I want to see what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because you, you'd want it to be true. I used to do that in premarital counseling. Yeah. I would have them with a tombstone. They'd each get a tombstone and say, write on here what you want your kids and grandkids to say about your life and your marriage after you're gone. And, uh, you know, for a 20-year-old, that's kind of a shocking thing to do. But it was amazing how many yeah. of them told me later. They framed that and they hung it in their house. Wow. It's amazing to me how, how little the living think about death. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's pretty much uh, guaranteed that everybody on on the face of the earth is going to die at some point in time. It's and yet, up to 100%, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you know, about, well, Elijah and Enoch <laughs> I were know. caught up to heaven. Yeah, <laughs> they, got they got away. Yeah, they got away. Uh, but I was talking to a guy in Amsterdam one time, and, and we were touring this cathedral. It's beautiful. But none of these old churches in Europe are being used as churches anymore. They're all museums and tourist right. attractions and so on. And I was talking to our tour guide, and I asked him, I said, you know, what, what do people believe here? And, uh, you know, d- does anybody really think about things of God and about this life coming to an end? And, and he says, no, not really. We're just, you know, living our lives. And it's like, you know, your destiny uh, and making this choice of who is this guy, Jesus Christ, which is going to determine your eternal destiny, is the most important question you can ask yourself. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this prompts the question and the point, Tom Parrish, because you're a pastor, would you uh, spend the next couple of minutes helping people understand if, they, if they're outside of Christ, they can start a new relationship with him today? He is more than eager to do that because he's there. And if you, you, know, if you feel any tug in your heart at all, you know, to what's eternity about? What happens when I die? Uh, who was this Jesus? That's a gift to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is pulling you. The resources available to people today are phenomenal. Your local church has resources. I love using the Roman Road, which is a number of passages that help talk about salvation. Um, but we can do a variety of things, and uh, we've talked about this here, Bill. There are so many tools, but go find some other people who have a strong faith and ask them to mentor you and spend time with them. But I'm saying people listening right now that go, no, 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 I don't know what's going to happen when okay. I die. I want to know what I can do about it. You can know right now, because Jesus said it comes down to this. If you're willing to admit your sin, that you are alienated from the Lord, that you need him, and if you're willing to confess him as Lord and Savior, Jesus, and if you're willing to stand up for him and believe that he rose from the dead, then 
by faith you can proclaim Jesus is my Lord and Savior and eternal life begins the moment you do that. You don't have to wait. It starts right now, says Jesus. Hmm. Anybody else want to jump in? Amen. That's amen. the gospel right there. Mm-hmm. Peter? No, amen. I'm glad you brought it up, Bill. I think that you, you can't be... There's not a more important conversation to have in this life. No, there's not. And I want to be very intentional with people who might be listening, even accidentally, and because nothing's accidental. There's there's nothing in God's economy that's accidental. Right. Um, so if you have tuned in and think, who are these guys talking? And they're not talking sports, but they're talking about things that sound important. And now you've gotten to the end of this hour where we have said, if you have not made a decision to put your faith in Christ... You have faith. You just have maybe have not placed it there because maybe you've believed in yourself. Today would be a day to say, no more me in charge. I want to put Jesus at the center of my life. Exactly. God says, I set before you this day two paths, death and life. Choose life. And never forget that it's motivated by God's love for every person on this planet. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I think two barriers that people have is they think they're not good enough to get to heaven. Uh, God doesn't know what I've done. Yes, he does, and mm-hmm. he died for it. Uh, or people think, oh, I'm a pretty good person. I'm doing pretty good. No, you're not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, it yeah. requires Jesus. He's the only way, the truth, and the life. He's the one mediator between God and man. He's the only door to heaven. And the good news is when you're still breathing, his hand is extended to you in love. Exactly. Now, that's the kind of work I like doing on Guy Talk. Oh. Thank you. Nice work, gentlemen. That's the time we have for today and for Guy Talk. I think we have to structure this so we have more Guy Talk time. We need to do the 90-minute version more often. You guys all vote yes? Sign me up. Okay, yep. good. All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Matthew Barrett's going to join me. He's written a book on the uh, Trinity. Like, you know, who has trouble with that? You know? Ah, you know, we'll find out. We'll take a short break. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.